Hello and welcome to the Granta Podcast. I'm Yuka Garashi, and today I'm joined by one of the best of young British novelists from our 2013 list, Benjamin Markovitz. Markovitz is the author of The Sign Papers, Either Side of Winter, Playing Days, and a trilogy on the life of Lord Byron, which includes Imposture, A Quiet Adjustment, and Childish Loves. We discuss the various interesting jobs he's had and how the experiences have made their way into his books, and the challenges of depicting realistic, sometimes uneventful lives. He also talks about his new novel, an extract of which appears in the issue. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Um, I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your path to becoming a writer. I know that you played pro basketball in Germany, and you've had sort of varied jobs and positions. You got an MPhil at Oxford and were a teacher and all that stuff. So does that sort of experience help you... Um, in your ability to write novels? I think jobs are, you know, apart from paying money, they're very useful for writers. Uh, and the basketball was always designed to help me write. I knew when I left college I wanted to be a writer. And I thought, how can I fund this habit? Mm-hmm. And I'd always wanted uh, to play basketball. I thought I could do it. I had a European passport, which meant I could play in Germany. Uh, and so that's why I played basketball. But the other jobs have always played a role in the books, especially teaching. I taught high school in New York for a year. And one of the problems with being a writer is that you don't know very much about how the people live, especially when you're young. And the advantage of teaching high school is it's something that everybody has experienced on one side of the fence or the other, and it turned out to be a very interesting world. And so the jobs were important to me. I think that there's sort of this romantic notion that writers, or at least a past notion, that writers had this checkered resume and life experience. And I think that sort of goes against what happens now, which is much more of a professionalization of writing, where people um, go to school and learn how to be a writer and then just sort of work on their brand almost. And um, so it seems like, it seems like you're, uh, you also use your life experience a lot in your writing. That's right, yeah. yeah. Does that worry you as an editor? Do you get a different kind of writing if people it, have been professionalized from an early age, do you think? Um, I think so. I think it's, it's, it's become an interesting sort of problem of life versus art um, where, like you said, there's one way of looking at it is that you need to have a lot of life experience in order to have material for your your writing. Right. And another that says that all you need is your imagination, really. So I wonder maybe you can talk a little bit. I I know that a lot of your, your, um, your books sort of explore this territory as well, this idea of life versus art or reality versus fiction yeah um the yeah i i never took creative writing classes when i was coming up but i teach them now mm. and i actually think you can learn something and i'm not saying you can learn something in my class but in general you can learn something and you can learn something faster than than certainly i did one of the things that it has focused that helped me focus on is what i want from a book and it turns out that i want information from novels from fiction too and i want a kind of expertise mm. so Access to a world like the world of, say, minor league professional basketball seemed to me one of the kinds of things I could sell because I knew something about it and it was odd and others don't. Mm. And that the demands you make of fiction aren't really that different from the demands you make on on journalism. You want people to have figured something out and you want them to tell it to you. It's not just some weird act of the imagination. Is that sort of the same impulse that uh, has you writing historical fiction as well? Uh, Your Byron trilogy... Just, just sort of the the joy of having material to 
Yeah, that's right. You, you know, when you're a kid and you're writing and you produce something, I don't know, when you're 10, 15, even when you're eight, and you show it to your parents, you show it to your brother, and you want them to think that somebody else wrote it. Mm. That's sort of the ambition, right? You, the first thing you write, you want them to think it's so good, it, it wasn't even by you. And in a funny way, the games I play with the line between life and art, it's not that I was try, I'm was i trying to call into question the authenticity of what I'm doing. Mm. The, the historical fiction is interesting to me because I like to see if I can make it so real that people can't tell the difference between the source material and the things that I've made up. That's really interesting. Um, I also think that there's this way that... Um, well, your Byron trilogy is really interesting, and I was just reading um, Childish Loves, actually, this mm -hmm. morning, and I felt like there was this way that... You, the, the question you're asking, one of the questions that you're asking in that book is, um, what can you learn about someone's life through their books, right? But there's also this other question of how do you, what do you learn about books through life? So mm -hmm. it's, they're related. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about about that question. Yeah, that's sort of the premise of Childish Loves. And it's I, I take a series of manuscripts and that are supposedly written by somebody other than me, mm -hmm. and I ask about them. What can we learn of the author? Yeah. And I think it turns out that you can't learn very much reliably. Mm -hmm. And so I hope what the Childish Loves eventually shows is that. You know, the, what do you get from books? What do you want to learn from, from books? What's the kind of knowledge that they give you from, from fiction? And even if you can't learn what's true, I hope that you know, the, sort of the point of Childish Loves is that you can get a sense of how you should live the choices that you should make. Right. One of the funny things about teaching creative writing is that I can get a terrible short story about somebody's alcoholic mother and have no idea if it's based on their lives. Right. But I can tell that it's a bad story. <laughs> And you'd have thought that the skill of being able to tell a good story from a bad story would have something to do with telling the true story from the false one, but I'm not right. sure it does. Yeah, maybe it's it's almost like another question I wanted to ask you was sort of if if the your books are incredibly insightful and sort of almost unforgivably probing about about sort of human character, I think. And I wonder if that comes from not from life so much, but actually from reading books or how much that insight comes where did you get the insight, you think, to, to write like that? There are definitely books that I've read that changed my sense of what people are like, and that's sort of what you read for, and that's one of the things you can, you can read for. I remember as a kid, and I think a lot of kids have this feeling, I remember listening to grown-ups talk and thinking a lot of it was phony, mm -hmm. and their motives weren't quite right, and I didn't trust what they were saying. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that's what I try to do as a writer. I try to think through the reasons people have for saying the things they do and doing the things they do. Um, I think another strain that I find in your writing is there are a lot of teachers and mentors and coaches in it. Um, I was wondering if they were important in, in your own life. I don't know if I had... I had. I mean, I had some very good teachers, um, but that partly comes from this one experience I had teaching high school. Mm. And as I said, I don't know much about how people live their lives, but I, I do know something about how a private high school in New York works. And it turned out that was a really interesting setting for me because you have this divide between the kids and the grown-ups, and the kids all think they never want to be teachers when they grow up, and the grown-ups at the school are really quite happy to have these good jobs. And you get this sense of the difference between how people want their lives to turn out and how they, in fact, do turn out, and that seemed like an interesting place to write about. I think that's why I've, I've talked so much about teachers. Do you feel like, um, so it's more about 
your experience as a teacher than as a student or as somebody who's coached. That's or, probably true. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, I think one of the things about your writing is that it's often about things that that don't happen. Um, not not just sort of failure in general, but a lot of near misses. I noticed, you know, like a shot that's not made, yeah, or yeah. Um, even sort of the sexual violations that that are sort of on the verge of happening but don't happen. And I was wondering if you could talk about why you're drawn to to that kind of material. I think one of the things that people struggle with when they're trying to write is that their lives, their own lives, seem to them very uneventful. And then they read books, and the books seem full of events. And there's a gap between those two things. And, I, and my sense is that lots of writers, for understandable reasons, fill their books with events because they think it makes them easier to read. And so I'm trying to figure out how I can make books that come closer to my own experience, which isn't particularly eventful. Nothing seems to happen to me. Uh, and so that's another reason I sometimes use my own name in the book, because it turns out that if you want to write a book about, uh, let's say, a marriage, and you use a fictional character, you you need to make these this, this guy, this unhappy husband, have lots of affairs in order for it to, to work. Mm -hmm. But if you use your own name, suddenly yeah. the stakes are much higher with much less happening, mm. and that interests me. Yeah, it's interesting. What's interesting also about your work is that um, a lot of times when I read what's called metafictional work, it seems to be a way to to almost deflect attention from the character, or um, maybe a better way of putting it is to is to sort of build in the sort of criticisms that, that mm -hmm. other people would have, so in, 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 in to sort of um, neutralize them. But something about your work makes you deep, probe deeper into into your character, into into sort of become even more um, more sort of a, to have more of a steady gaze on 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 what makes up a character. So. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about how you feel about even the term metafiction or whether whether you feel like you're doing something different with with that? I don't know if I'm doing something different. I don't I'm not I don't wouldn't call myself a metafictional writer. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, one thing I I do when I write these books with my name in it is I don't wink at the reader very much. And my instinct all the time is to see how real I can make something. Whether I'm writing about Byron or about me, I want to make it seem as real as possible. That's because I think generally the real story is more interesting than anything I can come up with. Mm -hmm. And so I try to approach what the real story would be like when I write. Um, you d so you're really interested in realness, but you don't ever want to be completely real. Like, you don't ever want to write that's, a memoir. That's true. I mean, I guess I wrote a memoir for you about coaches, and that, and I used a bit of that in my novel um, in, in Playing Days. The, the opening of Playing Days comes from the piece I wrote for, for Grant about oh, being see. coached. Mm. Um, I like, that's true, I, mean, I think there's something fun about fiction, and there's something fun just generally about thinking abstractly about your life, and I think some of that fun has to be there. Uh, so even though I, I aim at realism, I think I, I like a kind of playful realism. I wanted to go back to and talk a little bit about um, playing days and sort of this idea about failure, um, and I'm going to do something potentially embarrassing and read you your work okay. <laughs> and your writing, um, but there's this passage that that I think is really stunning in that piece. Um, and it's when the narrator realizes um, that even the sort of most phenomenal star on that team is, is going to be just kind of okay when he gets to the NBA. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, he's talking about the other members of the team, and he says, uh, their whole lives, all they practiced was how to get a round ball into a round hoop and stop other people from doing the same. And they weren't even close to the big time, not even close. Of course, our failings aren't only professional, and after that year I began to see everything in a cold, assessing light. 
What chance do the rest of us have to give a reasonable account of ourselves, not just at work and play, but in more complicated and difficult contests? And I feel like this is such a theme that I see in your writing, this idea of sort of taking the measure of somebody or sort of seeing somebody in this, in this cold, almost assessment, uh, an assessing light. Um, and there's something, you know, sports obviously is, a, is, is one field where that, where that happens. Um, and why, what's, I guess, just your thinking behind that kind of, um, that kind of assessment? You picked out the heart of the book. I mean, that's, that's really the, the thing I wrote the book for. And in fact, it reflects my own experience. After college, I went to play pro basketball in Germany. I played for a, a minor league, a second division team. Yeah. And you, you, know, you can't see this um, online, but I'm six foot six. I'm not slow. Uh, I spent my whole childhood playing basketball, and it turns out that I'm a really mediocre ball player and that these guys who were stuck not making very much money in a small town outside Munich mm. were just incredibly good. And I've used that really made a deep impression on me and I've used it as a kind of model of how to assess people's abilities ever since. You know, if these guys who are really freaks of nature, they were all six six, six eight incredibly fast, if all they can do is end up in the second division of the Deutsche Basketball Bundesliga Süd, mm. then it's a tough world to strive in. And that led me to think that maybe the problem with people, and this gets back to the eventfulness question, what goes wrong in books? And you know, there's the tragic flaw uh, model for how to make your characters uh, face their desserts. And it struck me that maybe what goes wrong with people is not a tragic flaw or any dishonesty or any accidents, but just that they're not good enough. They're very good at what they do, but they're not good enough at marriage, they're not good enough at parenthood, they're not good enough at their relations with their friends. And you just have to be incredibly good for these things to work out, incredibly skilled. And so that's sort of a driving force behind the stories I, I write. Do you think that all environments are, are as sort of uh, coldly competitive as, as a, a basketball field? Or? Probably not. But it, and the other thing is that the, the competition is much easier to see on the basketball court. Other people are competitive with each other, but they never know if they've won or lost. Mm. And one of the things that's depressing about sports is that you know, right. and you usually lose. That's right. the... Yeah, and it seems it seems like this this type of cold assessment is this way to um, to sort of really get the measure of a person. I think that's a phrase that you use as well. Um, and it also seems it also seems to me though that it can be kind of a burden as as a way of of sort of seeing the world. Um, do you feel as if that's one of your projects as a novelist to sort of have this burden, almost. You know, I, and as a writer, I guess it's one of my projects to, to shed the burden because something happens when I sit down to write and I try to say what I really think about things. And as soon as you try to say what you really think, everything gets a little bit colder. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that gets lost in that coldness is happiness and love and pleasure and all those things. And I think in, in future, I'd like to get better at writing happiness. I've tried. Uh, it's not easy. But I'd like to show a slightly happier world than I've, I've shown so far. So does the happiness come when somebody sort of succeeds in, in that competitive environment? I think, you know, I think success does make people happy, uh, especially as they get older and they have a place in the world. I think that's a, not a bad recipe for happiness. But I think there's lots of small things that make people happy that are just hard to write about. They're hard to dramatize. Hmm. Yeah, it seems like if um, one of the projects that you're doing and you're writing is to sort of dramatize the things that don't happen. So maybe happiness is actually 
a really good one for you to tackle. Yeah, no, maybe that's next. Yeah, yeah I think that will be next. I'm sure I'll make it miserable. But I'm, <laughs> I mean, I tried my second book, uh, Either Side of Winter, was supposed to be about people becoming happier, but nobody could see it. Yeah. I think that book really ends with with sort of an incredibly hopeful moment, um, where that where the the teenage daughter sort of recognizes that this marriage, which seems really flawed, that she's a product of, is actually sort of has at, at its heart some sort of love, which I thought was incredibly well done. Thank you. Yeah, that's that, that's right. That's that's the, maybe my most loving ending. Mm. Actually, most of the books end with some kind of love. Um, people come back to their families. They decide not to give their lives up to work, whatever it is. Um, I have a question that's a little... Um, it's kind of difficult to frame, and it has to do with um, how sort of probing and insightful a lot of your characters are. And um, I'm wondering if you ever feel as if there's a kind of anachronism or even a lack of realism about giving, for instance, someone like that teenage daughter such an ability to see people, or or do you ever feel as if uh, there's it's difficult to sort of give that to your to characters, even um, in your new book? There's, there's these Ivy League college undergraduates, and they seem incredibly wise to me. Mm -hmm. And do you ever struggle with that? You know, actually, there was a review of Either Side of Winter. I think Claire Massoud wrote it when she said that uh, the writer attributes to his characters the sort of insight that maybe only the writer has. I think people tend to be really smart about their lives. And maybe it has to do with I grew up in an academic family, and I grew up around articulate people. But independent of that, I think everyone I meet, if you ask them detailed questions about why they do what they do and how they live their lives, they tend to be much better at their own lives than I could possibly be at them. Mm. And they're smart about their relations with their parents, they're smart about their relations with their lovers. And so I try, you know, I, as much as I can, I try to approach the level of wisdom and experience that people have in living their own lives. Um, and I usually fall short, but that's the goal. I think people are smart. They make mistakes and the things that they can't see, but they're also experts, and I try to reflect that in the writing. Yeah, it seems to me that there's a sort of, you know, it's it's sort of easy to make um, camps in writing, but there is, I feel like there's a camp that thinks that um, that narrator should should be should be incredibly smart and sort of know everything, and to to have this sort of almost godlike power to to sort of see everything, and then another who believes that most people are just rather deluded about their yeah. <laughs> about their lives and can't really see anything, and and sort of. Through their writing, you reveal to the to the reader what what they themselves don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know the moment when you, you've got a friend and you think they're doing something stupid, or you think that you're fighting with them for some reason, <clears throat> and you've never given them that much credit for being smart, and then they say something about you, which shows that not only that they are smart, but they've thought about you, mm -hmm. and they've thought about you in ways that you haven't anticipated. Mm -hmm. And it's a very interesting moment in a friendship. It makes you realize why you're friends with the person in the first place. And I like that moment. I mean, it's, it's something I try to recreate in the books. But I think lots of people have them with their friends. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your your new novel. Is it um, where? What stage are you at with, with I'm it? I'm sort of the editing stage. I'm going through it again with obsessive obsession. <laughs> and um, it's set partially on on Yale campus, and I know you went to Yale. Um, and I was wondering what made you sort of return to that territory again it's hard to write about undergraduate experiences i think it's hard to get them right it's hard not to make them too romantic or make people as you say too knowing it's hard to get the feel of it right and now that i'm 20 years out of it or almost 20 years out of it i felt like i could try to 
to do justice to what was a relatively important period of my life. What was what was important about it? Well, I was away from home for the first time. I was pretty miserable. I didn't want to be there. Uh, it's a big shock to live only among kids. You know, when you're a kid, you live among grown-ups and, and they're younger people, they're older people around. And suddenly you get to this world, which is full of 20-year-olds. That's, that's the only people who live there, apart from occasional professors. And it's a strange world, and it took me some getting used to. I feel like the, the feeling that I got from reading the extract was sort of how much uh, undergraduate life was about this uneasy feeling that you're missing something mm-hmm. or, or something's yeah. a little bit out of reach. You feel like that's that's kind of a theme that continues through the novel? Yeah, I mean, it certainly shaped my undergraduate. I mean, I had a good time at university, but I also felt like there were things going on I didn't know. Uh, I don't know how you felt about it, but, you know, there, there are Friday nights when you're sitting in the TV room mm-hmm. um, wondering whether to get something from dining hall or not, you know. And, um, yeah, that continues. I mean, it's the other thing I wanted to write in this book is about a guy who wants to live an unconventional life and he wants to live better than his parents lived and it turns out eventually in in this novel that that desire to live an unconventional life to live more closely with people is going to drive him away from them that's the sort of so the characters that you set up there's there's um there's these there's this character in that in the extract who is convinced that everybody that he knows is going to be right sort of the the leaders of the world and then there's this sort of more questioning narrator who says you know we're all just going to end up middle class americans with really i think there's a line that says um we're just going to produce really good childhoods for our children so is that one of the dichotomies that you're exploring yeah and i think so and also i'm at the the age now when i've got small kids and a lot of the people i know have small kids and no matter how privileged you are it's hard work and while you're having these small kids who mean a lot to you and take up a lot of your time, you're also in the heart of your career and trying to shape your life, your ambitious life. And it doesn't always go well. Mm-hmm. And the sense of frustration with that seems something I could write about. Yeah. Um, I also think uh, throughout your books and also in in this new novel in particular, there's, there's a treatment of sex that's really interesting. Um, so much of it has to do with kind of the urges and also the aftermath, but never sort of the high drama mm-hmm. of, of the actual event. <laughs> is there, you want is, more sweat? And, no, I, I'm not saying yeah. that it's, you should have more sweat, but <laughs> is there, um, I, and I feel like it actually adds this incredible, even though you're skipping sort of the main event, there's this incredible drama to that. Um, uh, I don't know if that's, uh, is something conscious in your writing to, to sort of... Yeah, well, one of the things that's going on in this book is, is that the... Um, narrator Marnie has to go through a kind of sexual awakening. And I think that's a very painful thing. Uh, if, if, if you're gay, you have a word for it. It's called coming out, and it's expected to be a painful and difficult thing to go through. But I think it's, it's difficult for anybody, this transition from the innocent, unsexual, prepubescent child mm. to the adult sexual one. And some of the pain of that is something I wanted to, to write about. Yeah, there's this really great um, scene where, where Marnie says, "Oh, I, you know, I, I really just wondered if I was gay." And, yeah. And then I, <laughs> and then one of the reasons why I didn't want to be gay is because I wanted to sleep with girls. <laughs> and I felt like that was actually very sort of indicative of, of maybe not only Yale but also undergraduate life in general, where you're just really not sure um, about where you stand, and that's one of the things that 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 you're doing in undergraduate 
as an undergraduate is trying to sort of figure that out. Yeah, I think a lot of guys, I mean, I, probably a lot of women go through it too, but yeah. you've got pent up sexual feelings. Yeah. You've got various degrees of attraction to both sexes. You're uncomfortable about the whole thing mm. and you don't know. And does your, does your novel go further beyond the campus and, and follow these, uh, these characters into, into middle age? It does. I mean, we, we, I follow them into their thirties and, and the sort of the premise of the book is that, um, one of them has an idea of recreating their undergraduate life in one of these rundown rest, rust belt towns. Actually, it's, it's Detroit, mm -hmm. where the neighborhoods are falling apart and can be bought cheaply. And one of his friends has made a lot of money, and they want to regenerate the place. And so, what I, I do is I bring them back together on some kind of political scheme to to regenerate one of these neighborhoods, mm -hmm. and it puts them in relation to the people who were there beforehand, so that this kind of college atmosphere is is and the, the privilege that they have is put in sharp contrast to the deprivation that's around them. Um, so this new book is set in America, yeah. um, but you've also written about Byron, which is a very British subject, and now you're your best young British novelist. Yeah. So I was wondering if you feel particularly like a British novelist, if that's a fair tag for you. Well, my, my career has been British. I mean, I started getting published here. I moved here with my wife after leaving New York and I wasn't published anywhere and I started writing reviews for the Times Literary Supplement. My primary publisher is, is, is English. Um, and I think it probably is fair. I know lots more about the, the British literary scene than I do about the, the New York scene. And I also spent about a third of my childhood in, in Britain. I know my accent probably sounds American. Mm -hmm. But my mother is German and my dad is one of these American guys who fell in love with London when he went to the LSE for grad school. And they used to drag us out of bed at five in the morning to go down to Bermondsey Antique Market when we were here. So I had a, I've lived in London longer than I've lived anywhere else. Do you feel like there's a really big difference between um, sort of British, the British no novel tradition and the American tradition? I think there probably is, though that's changing. I mean, the, the kind of the standard model for the British novel is the domestic realist one, mm. lots of class consciousness, finely observed details about domestic life. And the stereotype of the American novel is the big, ambitious, epic, cultural, sprawling one. Mm. And there's probably something to the, the stereotypes, though I think they're crossing over. And they're examples of each kind of writer on either side of the pond. Um, I also was wondering um, whether you feel like... Uh, I guess this goes back a little bit to talking about competition, but do you feel like you're ever in competition with those kinds of sort of ambitious, sort of more bombastic types of writing, do you, um, or, you know, in plot or in, um, in sort of language? Uh, Maybe, I mean, there's certainly a pressure to write novels that make large statements, and generally I like to make my case in the small claims court. Um, but I also admire novels that make big statements and they're difficult, it's hard to do. Mm -hmm. And actually in this new book, one of the things I'm trying to do is, is to, to make a bigger statement than I've attempted in the past. I think there's, uh, um, do you feel kinship with, with a certain type of writer? I mean, I, when I read your work, I, I get reminded a lot of um, Deborah Eisenberg and sort of that sort of, sort of the, the quiet but incredibly fine observational powers mm -hmm. of, of her. And I was wondering if, if there were other writers like that that you feel kinship with. I'm, a, I'm an Alice Monroe fan, and she, she writes sharply observed beautifully written stories of unhappy domestic life, basically. That's one of the things she does well. But Roth means a lot to me, too. And 
partly because he does play games with realism, even though he's, he's got this realist style, and partly because his language seems non-writerly in a funny kind of way. It seems like the language an articulate person would use. And one of my, the reasons I'm interested in 19th century literature is because you hadn't got this divide between the way a writer should talk and an educated person should talk. And one of the things I try to do in my prose is come as close to the language of ordinary smart people, I mean, as smart as I can make them, mm. uh, rather than the language of the writer. And, and Roth is very good at that. He, he, he writes a very natural line. I wonder if that has to do with another kind of tradition, um, not just the British tradition, but the, the sort of Jewish intellectual tradition as well of literature. I'm sure um, that's there. And, and I'm, I'm a big Bellow fan too. And my father grew up in, you know, yeah. a Jewish kid in upstate New York. And his language you know, and um, his childhood means something to me. Do you um, do you like teaching? I do. I do kind of like teaching. You know, it's it's nice to. I also get to see humans. You know, if you, if you sit at your desk all day, you don't see many humans, and I see all these twenty-year-olds and can ask them about what's going on in their lives, um, and and that's rewarding, and it also makes you think about what works and what doesn't. You know, if that thing you thought you could get away with in your own work, when you see it reproduced a hundred times in a student story, you grow a little tired of, and you try to tighten up your own work too. Hmm. So um, you're using your students as finding out what not to do. <laughs> what well, finding find what not to do. <laughs> yeah, and also think, I mean, I try to, I try to say, yeah, it makes you think a lot more about what you want from a story, what can be taught, what can be learned, hmm. um, what a story should do. Are you um, working on anything besides this, this novel? Um, just you know, looking after kids and, um, and, and teaching. I write, I still write reviews and uh, but I want to get, you know, the, the, the teaching is almost over, and I want to get back to something else. Um, this this happy story, I'll, I'll try to write happy people. That's the So this novel ambition. that you have right now is not going to be, is, is not going to be about happy people? I don't know. You tell me. You can tell, <laughs> you can tell me after, after you read it. Okay. Um, thank you so much for talking. Thank you. And um, congratulations on being one of our best of young British novelists. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. The Granta Podcast is available for free download on iTunes, SoundCloud, and selected British Airways flights. To subscribe to Granta, please visit our website, granta.com.